Welcome back to the Black in Real Life podcast. It's your girl, Anuli, here with a new episode. America celebrates its independence today, but the truth remains that we are not all free. In the past week alone, the Supreme Court effectively ended affirmative action in higher education by deciding that the race-conscious approach to admissions at Harvard and UNC is unconstitutional. And if that wasn't enough, the Supreme Court went on to rule against President Biden's federal student loan forgiveness plan. I could go on to list more ways that our collective freedoms, especially the freedoms of Black people, have been limited this year alone, but I won't do that today. I want to instead introduce this episode's guest, who I hope inspires you to see that it is possible to be aware of certain constraints or truths that may structure your life, but not to be wholly limited or stifled by them. If you are in a season of transition or are looking to pivot professionally, then this is the episode for you. As In Vogue wisely instructed us, free your mind and the rest will follow. This episode's featured guest is Kimberly Benz. Kimberly Benz is an interdisciplinary artist and producer working in digital media, architectural design, painting, drawing, and photography. Her projection mapping and moving image installations have been central elements to a number of award-winning projects, including the Praise House Project. She is also a recent recipient of the prestigious Susie Bass Award for Projection Design and has the distinction of being a Hambridge Creative Arts Residency Fellow. Originally from Washington, D.C., Kimberly received her Bachelor of Fine Arts degree from Georgia State University and currently works and lives in Atlanta, Georgia. In this episode of the Black and Real Life podcast, Kimberly and I talk about how to understand yourself well enough to know what environments you work best in. We also talk about determining when it is time to pivot or change careers and what it means to truly have a curatorial eye. As always, at the end of each episode, I will come back to share a few key takeaways that stood out to me from the conversation. These takeaways will be supplemented with research from both academic and non-academic sources to add further context to subjects that were brought up in the interview portion. For every episode, I will include citations to the reference materials I mentioned, as well as some additional background reading for you on the Black and Real Life website. Visit www.blk irl.com to nerd out.
Thank you so much for your time here today, Kimberly. I wanted to start by asking you, where do you call home? Oh, home is Atlanta, Georgia. Mm. Um, I lived here for, I moved here in the early 90s. Um, okay. I'm originally from Washington, D.C. So you said early 90s. So now I have to ask before or after the 96 games? It was before. Okay. So mm -hmm. did you notice the city yes. kind of transitioning? Okay. <laughs> you don't even oh. have to, you don't even have to finish the question. <laughs> well, I'm Absolutely. curious. Tell me about that. Yeah. What yeah. Like? So, so I, I moved here in either 92 or 93. So I was okay. here pre-Olympics and, you know, during free pick, like, oh, like original, I'm an OG. Okay. Did so, you go? Did you go uh, I did. I went to one okay. and that was good for me. Okay. That was good for me. When I moved here, I lived in a predominantly black part of the city called the West End. And it is mm -hmm. still mostly predominantly black, but it is like everywhere else, quickly gentrifying. And um, when the Olympics uh, was announced, you know, just the city was a buzz. It was a huge deal, obviously. And everywhere, you know, neighborhoods were being cleaned up and streets were being repaved and benches were being put out and trash cans were, mm. you know, put in place. And, you know, it was like this mad dash to, uh, you know, put glitter on the city. And I can remember distinctly, there's a, a, a major intersection in the West End community. It's at the intersection of uh, Ralph David Abernathy and Lee Street. Okay. And I remember uh, there was like construction going on, like in the intersection, they were improving the intersection. So, you know, crosswalks and, you know, things that, things that should have been in the neighborhood already. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's this construction going on, the, these improvements happening. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is great. You know, maybe they will bring some of that a little further down the street, you know, into the neighborhood a little bit more. And that did not happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Literally the only thing that was done in the West End was they repaved that intersection, you know, just like put some bricks yeah. and, you know, like prettied it up and put a design in the intersection. And that was it, nothing else, nothing else, nothing else happened in the West End. So the Olympics did not do anything for us. But um, but yeah, I've lived here a long time. I've seen, I feel like I've seen the city transition five times over. Mm. Uh, you know, there were structures and buildings that were here when I moved here. And, you know, maybe in just a few short years, like in three years, they were gone and put, you know, something else put in their place. And now those buildings are mm. being torn down and replaced with with something else. So it's been, um, it's been a lot, there's been a lot of transition here. It's pretty crazy. But when I go home to DC, it's the same. I drove yeah. by the house, my mom and I, the apartment building my mom and I lived in for many years and didn't even recognize the street, the block. I believe that, I believe <laughs> it. So yeah, it's, it's everywhere, but Atlanta has been home for me and it's been a great place for me creatively. Um, I have a, an amazing uh, 
group of friends and I call them family, oh, you know, because yeah. you, when your friends are just that close to you and they're so supportive and just do, we have each other's back, literally. And I'm just so grateful. And I really don't think that, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that any other place has this sort of closeness in its creative community. You know, we really, really wow. do okay. lift each other up and support one another. And I think that's, I think that's pretty unique. Um, you know, I, I have many artist friends who have worked in other cities and, or have gone away for a while and have come back. And every time they come back, they say, it's just, Atlanta is just mm -hmm. different. <laughs> It really is kind of a special, um, unique atmosphere for for creatives that live here. You can you can live here and and work here. I am curious, also hearing more about your background. Being from DC, I I'm actually was born in DC myself, raised in Maryland. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I am curious about like how was it to grow up in DC. Like, did you grow up in the city proper or outside of it? And then also what brought you to Atlanta then? So a little bit of both. I was born in DC mm -hmm. uh, on the campus of Howard University, as a matter of fact. I went to Howard um, University. Oh, hey, so I was born. Okay, so it's not there now, but- I'm sure it's not, nothing is there. <laughs> nothing is there. Um, Friedman's Hospital was- exactly right. Okay, Friedman's Hospital, that's where I was born. Friedman's Hospital is actually what the- mm -hmm. School of Communications. School of Communications. Was, which is where so I funny, went. So funny story. So back in back in the day, late 80s, early 90s, um, I was in high school. And, um, you know, D.C. used to have, I don't know if they still have it, but <clears throat> they had this uh, summer youth program, summer youth work program. And mm -hmm. high school students as young as 14 could apply and go to work somewhere in the city. It was a really unique program. The city would partner with some government agencies or you know, some other private sectors, business sectors, and kids would, you know, teenagers would work at these places. So one, my, one of my very first Marion Barry summer youth program mm. jobs <laughs> was at the School of Communications at Howard wow. University. I remember I was with a, a group of other uh, high schoolers and um, we basically got paid minimum wage. Let me just put that out there. <laughs> uh, we got paid minimum wage, but still it was money, um, to learn to, you know, to work at mm -hmm. the School of Communications. But, but what we were doing was really, uh, it wasn't really a job necessarily. It was more like a, like a program. Again, and getting kids off the streets or something? Get, yeah, getting us off the streets. And I remember in this particular program that I was in, uh, we had someone who was teaching us uh, very, very basic things about you know, journalism. Mm. And I remember we had to, we each had to choose a top topic <clears throat> and go out and source you know, information about this topic find someone to interview about whatever topic we chose and then write about it. 
and, and that was that was the summer job. So you're that a journalist. I am not a journalist. I mean, you were. You were a journalist. <laughs> uh, for for that summer. Yeah, that's it, what they were teaching. Whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was, you know, it was kind of neat. It was a full circle moment. And to hear that you, uh, you know, attended and- yeah. I did a, pretty cool. a class like that and they made us do assignments just like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My yeah. mother is broadcast journalism. So I'm like, oh, okay. A lot okay. of connections. But yeah, that's pretty you, awesome. You were a journalist that summer, but now you are an interdisciplinary artist. I am. And uh, so let, I'll, I'll run through my journey. Um, I did not grow up in a creative or or artistic household. That mm-hmm. was not something that was on our radar. You know, um, <clears throat> you know, I've always, I've always been creative and I've always had a, you know, very curious mind about things. And I've always appreciated artsy things. I'm using the word artsy because that's the, you know, back in the day, that's what I would, I, that's that's how I would identify things. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I've always, it's all that creative bent has always been in me. It's always been a part of me, but actively engaging in any arts related things were just wasn't something that was um, top of mind in our household growing up. I will say the benefit of, you know, coming up in DC is you have the Smithsonian, which is free. Mm -hmm. And I would just go downtown and go to the portrait gallery, um, the National Gallery of Art, and just just walk around. I didn't necessarily understand you know, what I was looking at from an academic sense. You know, if there was a Caravaggio, I didn't know. I didn't know who or what that meant, but I did, you know, just engage in some, some self-exposure. And I found that when I w- went to those places, it, it was peaceful, it was calming, I felt good. And I think that may have been the beginnings of me learning to appreciate art. I will say that music, however, was something that was very much a part of my life. I played cello in third grade and I played flute for a little while. And of course, um, when I came up, I was part of the the generation that was introduced to MTV. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that whole aspect, you know, having that platform just, man, <laughs> it was really, really just game changing. Um, but I've always loved music. Uh, my dad was a DJ back in the day. And, you know, he exposed me to a lot of, a lot of different music, a lot of different genres. And to this day, I I carry that with me. My mother, um, she did enjoy, she did enjoy uh, going to plays whenever, you know, she had a chance. They were far and few in between, um, but she did enjoy that. And so, you know, uh, although I said arts was not an active part of our daily life and existence it, there were there were some some things there mm. um but so it, even though you know i i kind of you know put myself in those environments it's still you know art as a profession or any sort of creative lifestyle was not something that was just on my radar i didn't see myself 
doing those things. I thought that's something that other people do. What did you see yourself doing? Uh, for a long time, I didn't really know. <laughs> um, you know, uh, um, after I graduated high school, um, I started out at Virginia Commonwealth University. And um, just like most freshmen, it's just kind of flailing in the wind <laughs> mm-hmm. and not really, you know, I was just there just trying to figure it out. And what was your um, major? Uh, my major was, um, I think initially it was communications because I think oh. that was just like the, <laughs> I think that was just the thing, right? I had, yeah. I, I, I had that experience. It, it was a remnant. Yeah, I had that experience. It was a remnant of that summer youth program. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I got to do something. So I'm doing this. And, um, and then I switched over um, to philosophy with the idea of continuing on to law school somewhere down the road. Mm. Fast forward a few years, few years, few years. <laughs> I'm kind of in my everyday drudgery, grown up life, bills, you know, doing all the grown up things and not living a creative life at all. Mm. Um, I just, I, I just did a little self-reflecting and I was like, you know, I really want to do something else. And I really want to be, I want to be an authority on something creative. <laughs> I want to be a person that somebody comes to and asks about whatever it is. So the entry point for me was design, like interior design, first decorating and then design. And I was really, really into the home shows that were starting to come online, um, like when HGTV first yeah. began. Um, the shows that they had on those networks at the time were were truly, uh, they weren't reality shows like we know them today. They were the mm-hmm. first iterations of reality shows, but not scripted or just craziness going on. You know, so there was this, this element of realness um, because they would have like real designers, you know, helping families out with whatever. And I was fascinated by that. And I was like, oh, I like that. I like looking at pretty things in my house. I like a nice environment. Too bad the um, audience can't see that you have a beautiful uh, background. Oh, like your thank home you. is gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And I said, um, I want that for myself. If not just, you know, to literally have it for myself in my house. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to help others attain this, you know, level of beauty in their home. So um, I went back to school and got a fine arts degree in commercial interior design. Now, when this happened, when I, once I got that degree, when I got that degree, it was in the height of the housing crisis. So no, <laughs> no, no, houses no listen, no houses to decorate, no design firms were checking for anybody. I was mm-hmm. not, I can't tell you how many resumes and phone calls, and this was like beginnings of internet people. So you still wrote letters, mm-hmm. you know, at least you wrote a letter out in an email. <laughs> um, but I can't tell you how just the reach, I was sending these out everywhere and it was crickets, crickets. So I was like, man, this sucks, <laughs> what to do? Um, finally, I did you know, start working with 
uh, woman. She had an independent firm and she specialized in senior downsizing and relocation. So Mm -hmm. like when families were helping their parents or their senior loved ones downsized, maybe to move to a smaller home or maybe to move into assisted living. This woman I worked with, um, that was what her company did. Her company helped to facilitate that transition. And what my role was, was to do space planning and design, you know, just basically <laughs> showing people where their furniture was going to go. Very, very low key. This was not high end, you know, this was not my high design dream of designing in Japan, you know, for the leading design house or whatever. It was not that, but it was something. And, um, you know, it kept me kind of in this creative zone. And this would have been around, uh, 2010, 20, uh, no, sorry, before that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so to, uh, yeah, well, uh, well, my, I got my degree in 2010. Okay. Um, but we were still feeling it it was still there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was still there. So, um, but this would have been, yeah, uh, 2000, between 2009, 2012, you know, just kind of in, in that area, in that time frame. Um, when I was working with this woman and uh, I'm working with her it's cool and just randomly uh, I <laughs> I met a gentleman who uh, had a small film company uh, that he was trying to get off the ground again this was when everybody was a videographer everybody there was, was a movies. moment there's a lot of web there series around that, that time yeah there was that moment so I don't even remember remember where or how we met or how we connected uh, but I worked with him on a few projects as uh, a script supervisor. So helping him in the production, you know, just keeping productions on track and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, in the midst of all of this, I had started, you know, I'd started connecting with, um, you know, meeting new friends, meeting new people in the artist community. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of those people is my partner, Fabian Williams. Uh, we actually we actually met at an event at uh, at an art at the Atlanta Contemporary um, Museum that was being hosted by my now other friend Fahamu Piku. He used to do these series um, that were kind of like a art talk show situation if you could imagine like a jay letter uh jay leno okay uh you know colbert colbert excuse me fallon that type of yeah 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 it was it was that format but he talked about art and he would have that yeah he would have three you know he'd have panelists on and this particular this particular night that i went he had michael rooks who is with the high museum michael rooks Mm. is curator at high museum Dion Barris, um, who is a singer, songwriter, she was with Arrested Development. Mm. Um, and um, Jason Orr, who is a culture creator here and the, um, the creator of um, not, oh gosh, what is the name of the series? It's a music, music series, live music series that he, um, that he put together and um, did ran for like a decade. But anyway, and the, yeah, so the young man who was emceeing the event is Fabian, Fabian Williams. He's a he's an artist, and that's where we met. <laughs> and um, so that meeting of all of those people that mm-hmm. night, 
was really a catalyst for me because now just kind of looking back, everyone that was in the audience, they're all my friends and they are all artists. They're all visual artists and they all work mm-hmm. in different mediums and just, it, it's, it's really amazing. Yeah. So once I kind of, you know, found myself in this community, um, you know, I'm doing, all, doing just, I'm just inserting myself wherever I'm just trying to work, <laughs> pay bills, um, and just, you know, keep things going. And, uh, you know, in my education, in, in my uh, design program, you know, as a designer, as an artist, when you are in a fine arts program, you have to take a lot of foundation courses. Mm-hmm. So photography is photography was one of those foundation courses that I that I took. Before that, I had always, you know, just kind of I was an amateur photographer, you know, just for leisure. And um, Fabian had a project. He was like, hey, I've got these videos of this event that I, you know, need edited. Can, is that something you can help me with? And I was like, yeah, I guess. I don't know. So he just showed me, you know, real briefly how to use editing software. And I just picked it up and ran with it. So what came of that is a few years of me doing video work, doing post-production mm-hmm. editing work. That kind of turned into a bread and butter moment for me. On top of your design before. work? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, on top of my design work, but but also the design piece was kind of winding, winding itself down. Mm. And I'll tell you the reason why. For as glamorous and awesome that people think architecture and you know design work like true design work mm-hmm. like you working at a design firm it is highly administrative mm-hmm. because when you're designing things yes you're you're designing stuff but if you're uh, let's say let's say you're designing a, a an apartment building there are standard practices that are involved in creating floor plans. At the end of the day, it's really all about the bottom line. You know, what what maximum can we get for the minimum? And in a lot of ways, it can, it can be a little stifling um, to your creativity. And um, I also realized that working in an office environment is not the best environment for me. Mm, okay. I found myself sitting at a desk daydreaming about other things mm-hmm. using the company's internet to look for other <laughs> to look up other things and research other things so um I, I think it's important to say that because it's really uh, you know for anyone who's who's thinking about you know maybe segueing into a, a creative career whatever it is mm-hmm. you have to have you have to have these know thyself moments and that was my know thyself moment I said, okay, you know what? Because I've been, by this point, I had been, I had found work in two different firms and I'd been let go by both of them. And I was like, what is this? Because it was crazy. They'd come to me mm. and they'd be like, Kim, Kim, we love you. And we think that you're just so, so, so. And my mother just thought you were the, what, what, but we just can't keep you here. And I'm like, well, if, do y'all really like me? Like what's mm. going on here? And I, and I, it took me a long time to really understand. You know, sometimes people 
people see us differently than we see ourselves. Yes, yeah. And I look back on those times of me being let go from, you know, whatever, as somebody understanding that maybe my vision or 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 the way I worked or whatever was grander or bigger mm-hmm. or more um, flexible than the what box. was being offered. The yeah. box. Yeah. Yeah. But I wasn't saying that for myself. Um, but I look, I look back on those experiences now as, as being that. I was like, oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you for, thank you for firing me. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, yeah. So as that was winding down, you know, this videography piece of me and this, you know, the editing piece of me that started ramping up and how that even happened was, you know, although I started doing things for friends, one day I went to an event. I was not hired. I was not asked to do this. I went to an event, an art event, and I just had my camera and I was just going around, you know, capturing footage. I went home and on my own created a a three minute, two, maybe two minute recap video of that event and sent it to the place, to the venue. And I was like, hey, I did this thing. I thought you might like it. So, 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 so. And then they reached out to me for their next big fundraising event. And they were like, hey, can we hire you to do this, that, and a third? And I was like, oh, okay. And so that's how that happened. Now, you know, this was, this was entry level, <laughs> but the fact that I had put myself out there. Yes, you took and the initiative. I took the initiative and just really believing in these vast skill sets that I have because there are lots of things I know how to do. I need to use, put them to use. So um, that's how that r- really kicked off for me. So for a few years, um, just kind of, you know, stayed, stayed in that zone of, of doing video and, and working and editing <clears throat> and um, started thinking, you know, I would like to expand uh, and do other things. I'm not sure wh- what those things are, um, but let me just see what's what. Oh, do you mind if I ask a question? Because I think this is important for people to hear as far as like context. Mm-hmm. what like age range were you in? Cause I know a lot of people, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. worry about like pivoting their second careers, things like yes, that. Yes. Thank you. That that's, I'm so glad you said that. Um, yeah, I was in my thirties. Okay. I was in my thirties. I, as a matter of fact, I was just turning 33, okay. 34, somewhere in there. So yeah, like I said, I was a grown up with bills mm-hmm. in a real mm-hmm. life <laughs> when I decided to make this shift. And I do want to say it is really important for people to to understand that I didn't wait. I wasn't like waiting for the right time to do whatever. Because mm-hmm. if I was waiting, I'd still be waiting and miserable. You have to, and it's scary because you know you got to eat. Yes. yes. <laughs> and if you have if you have family to take care of, you got you know they got to eat too. Gotta, they got to eat too. And if you are partnered, which I wasn't at the time I was kind of in between mm-hmm. but um if you are partnered your partner needs to be able to be supportive of you know 
of your whatever your adventure might be. So, but yeah, no, I, I was a grown up. I was not fresh out of college. I was not, mm-hmm. you know, that that was not my situation. I did a complete turnaround. I was in a completely different corporate life. And I just decided, mm, I'm good on that. Let me try this. So yeah, but thank you for asking that. I want you to continue this timeline because now you're you're picking up these different skill sets. You're exploring mm-hmm. like what a creative life for yourself could look like. But now, going forward a little bit, but also we'll go back. Now you're you call yourself an interdisciplinary artist. How did you yes. arrive at that title? When did you first realize like I'm an artist? The first time I realized I'm an artist was when I won my. F- first competition for a photography. The, um, there's an organization here, Atlanta Celebrates Photography. Every year they have this pushpin show. Basically anybody, it's open to anybody, Joe Schmo mm-hmm. off the street. If you got some photos, you want to post them, pin them up in the show, do that, and they'll be judged. And I did that. I had some photographs that I'd taken probably, probably 10 years prior, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I put those in the show and I won first place in the adult category. So wow. I was like, oh, this is a thing. Okay, that's great. And then shortly after that, um, I kind of sought out those types of things. If there were any uh, open calls for just like public pinup shows, pinup yeah. shows are a great way to just kind of put some things out there, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what I would do. So the very next thing I did was another pinup show at Mocha GA, which is the Museum of Contemporary Art of Georgia. And somebody bought my little piece for $100. I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. So it just started, the embers were were smoldering. And that's when I realized, okay, this is something that I can, I can pursue. Now, this was not a hot pan in the fire frying sort of situation. Mm. This was a slow... <laughs> This was a slow process for me mm, because again, it was new. Yeah, it was, it was new. I didn't know. I think what was helpful was I did have the benefit of having friends who were also artists and who were also kind of in the beginnings of their journey and we would collaborate on things. So that was really, really helpful for me. Yeah. So, you know, as, as time went on, I just started putting my work into, to more shows. I would put my work in auctions. A lot of arts organizations have uh, their fundraising auctions. So I would do that. Um, And, you know, when my pieces would sell, that's, that's like, okay, that's what it was. So then I decided, okay, well, yeah, I can, this is something I can pursue let me meander and, and, and figure out what works for me. So fast forward, maybe a little bit jumping ahead to today and the exhibit that you came to, that you saw. Homefront. Homefront, yes, Homefront. You know, that exhibition really was a view into my journey working myself through my creative process, my artistic practice, which is fluid. It's always shifting because I'm always 
thinking of other ways to do mm. things or other ways to convey, you know, whatever it is I want my art to convey or however mm. I want it to be perceived. You know, process is is just that. Like it's process, it's ongoing. So um I call myself an interdisciplinary artist because I I infuse all of the things that I have learned, photography, digital video graphic design, drawing and painting, like all of these things mm -hmm. I put into the work. So that's how I arrived at calling myself that or identifying myself, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, as an interdisciplinary artist. And, you know, I work collaboratively, collaboratively with other artists. I've done video installations, public art installations. There are just so many things that I do. I, I going back to those people in the office, Mm -hmm, who told mm -hmm. me I couldn't be in their box anymore. That's me. I can't yeah. really put myself in this one box of, I, oh, I just do, I just work in this medium or I just do this thing. So well, I think that's very, very much what I am, just kind of out of the box. I want to talk about your creative process. Um, I'm curious about, like, let's use your Homefront show as an example. Mm -hmm. um, what was the process for that? Like, how do you determine whether like a concept is worthy to dedicate a whole full show to? And then how do you determine what the best medium to express mm -hmm. that concept in? Yes. Um, so gosh, that there's so many things. <laughs> um, I read a lot and I research things and I'm very much a student of history. I, I like, I like knowing history and I like understanding the context of, of things. Um, <clears throat> I am the type of person who just, uh, you know, like, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm just a naturally curious person and I, I just like to understand stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and often when I'm just, you know, maybe randomly, I don't know, on a university's research website about whatever topic, you know, I might read a line about uh, a black woman who uh, helped to quietly pioneer some sort of, you know, new research technology. Okay, well, who is this woman? Who is this mm. person? I've never heard of her. And I will take that little piece and go find her, mm -hmm. go find that person, go find that story. So a lot of um, my subject matter um, kind of starts out that way. Now, Homefront, that show was really, um, the basis of that show was tied to the legacy of, how the legacy of, of housing segregationist policies, mm -hmm. you know, have reverberated within Black communities and, and what those policies have meant for our communities for generations, you know, um, and a big part of that, a big part of how those policies have affected, you know, our homesteads and, and even where and how we can live is community erasure. A lot of those policies contributed to Black folks being driven out of their communities or their communities being deemed uninhabitable because they were redlined, you know, in industrial areas. There's a lot of historical context to that. One big thing I like to, to 
bring up is Flint, Michigan, right? The water mm -hmm. crisis in Flint, Michigan, because that's kind of news, top of mind. It's the, one of the more recent issues, environmental issues. Well, we have to understand that the reason why that crisis happened was for several reasons. The primary reason being that community which is primarily black and primarily low income. That community was relegated to living there next to industrial sites. Why? Because of redlining practices that kept black people from moving and living in other parts of town. Like that's a fact. That's not conjecture. It's not fake news. Not the base. Yeah. <laughs> Can't debate that. Right. You know, it's it's documented. And in the exhibition, um, this documentation was highlighted in the large scale images that I had mm -hmm. of the federal housing uh, handbook. Mm -hmm. There's there's language that they had in in the handbook. This is the federal government's housing authority, their rules. Mm -hmm. And it's right there in black and white. Black people cannot live in certain neighborhoods. Like it's just, it's there. <laughs> and I felt like for all of the, the things that, that we are still, you know, protesting about and, and marching for and asking for, and, you know, for all of the things that we're, we have to understand why. And we also need to understand the historical context of why we continue to have to protest for our rights and you know march for you know equitable anything is because these practices although legally not you know enforced their enforcement in the 50s and even the 60s is affecting us today so the work in home front was a combination of actually three different bodies of work. But the through line in all of that work was this community erasure element, um, the you know, notion of anti-Blackness in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, just understanding that we as Black folks, you know, we have, we have fought for our communities. We have fought to you know, have our homes safe. We have fought for these yes. things because we, we want these things. Still fighting. We we're still fighting. Like we're Summer still Hill, fighting. right here, People's Town. Yeah, yes, yes. So I just, it was important for me to convey that in the art, but the challenge to your point of like how, you know, how do I go about choosing a way to do that. That was a challenge for me because I, I created, you know, some fine art pieces, but I also had these, you know, large scale uh, photo collages mm -hmm. um, that, you know, had, had elements of, again, you know, this, this redlining text or actual text from community covenants and that sort of thing, you know, and I just felt like people need to see it. People need to see it. Um, I also use video and projections as another means of conveying this information. You know, just really thinking of ways um, that people can 
can grasp the information and be impacted by it. And I, I do have to say that people who came to the show, there's a lot of information in the show. Yes. <laughs> people who came to the show, they would come and they would walk through and then come and just hang out and talk about what they just saw for you know, 30, 40 minutes because it spoke to them. They understood it. Or in you know, some cases, some of our, our allies, they would c- come in and see this and would be like, oh my God, I did not know. Oh my God, this is, mm-hmm. oh my, wow. Oh, this, oh, I can't. And that's what I want. I want, mm-hmm. I want you, whoever you are, to come away having learned something, having uh, developed an understanding, a greater understanding of something. And hopefully, you know, mm-hmm. having come away with a different perspective on why, you know, Black communities, poor communities, communities of color are fighting the way that we are. We're not, we're not just living in a vacuum. We're not mm-hmm. just waking up saying, oh, I, you know, you know what? I just feel angry or I feel upset or I feel, we're not just saying that. We are tired. <laughs> we're tired. And, and yeah, so that's how I, you know, just go about figuring out what to do. And, 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 and a lot of times the, the content will let me know. Mm-hmm. I might say, oh, I, I think it would be good to do a piece, you know, using these elements. But then the elements will say, you know what? I think we need to be heard in a video or we need to be seen in a projection or we need to be, you know, conveyed in a large scale collage, digital collage piece. So it's really, um, there, there's, a, there's a word for intuitive. Intuitive, mm. that's the word I'm trying to use. Yeah, so my, my process is an intuitive process. I'm not necessarily a sketchbook artist, you know? There's some artists who they sketch out whatever it is they're gonna do and that's what they do. I am more um, hands-on. Do you, you know, see visuals just, of just it in, in your head? Moment. Sometimes I do, sometimes okay. I do. And, and I'll, you know, just, I, I might, you know, sketch out, do a, a, a rough schematic of whatever it is I have an idea for mm. um, just as a, a starting point, but it never turns out exactly <laughs> how, you know, whatever that schematic is. But, you know, as I'm reading something, so if an idea comes up in my head, then I'll just, you know, s- sketch out whatever it is comes to me in that moment. Yeah. It, like, it's very fluid. It's very intuitive. It's not contrived. Mm. And this is something else. Uh, you know, our, our artists, each artist has their own way of doing things. I find that I need to step away from things sometimes, you know, just kind of be in it for an hour, two hours. And then I need to step away, just give myself a mental break. What are you doing on those to breaks? It. Like, how do you spend so, that time? So I, I always work to music. Okay. Always work to music. So something else you, I didn't share. I am an avid karaoke. Like I have my own karaoke. I have my own karaoke stage name. These (laughs) artists, these artist friends that I was telling you about years ago, we had a group called the Yo Karaoke Disciples, and we met weekly. We so that was your machine that you used for the artist talk. Yes. Okay. I told you. I said this is my setup that I brought from home. (laughs) So. 
Yeah. So like every week for this was, you know, back in 2013, maybe 2012, mm. every week for like three years, weekly, weekly. I was Run it back. At, I want to go. Listen, we, we've been working on it. We've been okay. working on it. But but anyway, that's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> I will take a break and, you know, put on a song, sing, song? you know. Oh, it, it whatever, like, whatever I'm a, feeling in the moment. One of your top, like in my pocket, this is a song I'll I'll do. Okay, so I can always do um there's a song called Lights by Journey. I'm I'm, I'm big on 80s. I'm okay. big on 80s. Okay. Um there's this song, yeah, it's called Lights by Journey. Um, you know, I love uh Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be your lover. Listen. I there's so many there's so I mean there's some country western songs that I sing so it just depends mm-hmm. on what my mood is in that moment you know that that's my process that is my process it's it's not um just sit down and you know drudge through it mm-hmm. it's it's very much it's very much a ethereal sort of okay this is what I'm doing okay let me get this oh all right I had this idea but this idea has popped into my head so let's see how that works. Mm. When do you feel most like yourself? Mm. That's a good question. Ah, uh, when do I feel most like myself? Huh. Hmm. You got me on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like not, I hope this is, doesn't sound like a cop-out answer, but I feel like I feel most like myself. Oh, I'll tell you when I do. I feel most like myself when my hair mm. is big and up, like like it is now. This mm. is actually kind of tame. Kind of like a, so I'm just trying to describe to the listeners. It's like a frohawk style yes. I see going. Uh, uh, yes, yes. It's it's all kinds of things. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a lot of things. But I feel most like myself when I'm just free mm. with, you know, with my hair. And also when I'm cooking. I'm a great cook and I love to cook and I love eating good stuff. And I feel most like myself when I'm in my studio, just kind of milling around. Sometimes I go to the studio and I won't do any art. I'll just go just to be there. Mm. And that's just as important as being there and actually putting something on canvas or on paper or whatever it is. Cause I do a lot of tinkering. I feel most like myself in those moments too. You talked about being free in reference to your hair, but I'm curious what freedom means to you in general. Mm, Freedom in general means options. Mm. That's real. Mm -hmm. Do you feel having having options? I do. Okay. I do. I do. Yeah. And I don't just mean, uh, and when I say options, I mean options in whatever area of your life. If Mm. it's, you know, financial options, if it's, you know, job options, if it's partner options, like mm-hmm. if you just, just having the ability and agency mm-hmm. to choose your path and do the things that you want to do and need to do, that is freedom. Do you think that it's possible to be truly healthy and whole under the conditions of the world that we live in? It is, but it takes work. It takes work and you have to you have to curate what you consume mm. visually in your life. You have to curate who is in your life, the people you bring into your space. 
you have to curate and edit those things. And that is how I think you can be healthy and thrive under these conditions because these streets is real. Mm. <laughs> it's trash. It's, it's real trash. trash. <laughs> it is trash. It is trash. It is trash. Mm. You, yeah, it takes it takes a lot. I um I have a young son. He's seven. And um I, I have to say I'm always just thinking about what it's gonna be for him. Mm. Um, I think he'll be okay because he has me and his dad as his parents. Mm-hmm. And you know, we are guiding him on his path. Um, but instilling in him now that he has agency and he has he can be who he is. Mm. And that is okay. That's okay. Yeah. Um, but but just thinking about how things are, um, I I wonder, I don't know, if I, you know, been a few years younger and coming into this world, just what that would be like for me. Because mm. I feel like it's easy for me to not be in the melee of, you know, social media life mm. and internet life and that sort of thing. I am quick to put on a vacation responder. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, you know, I was joking. People joke with me all the time. They're like, you know, when I post something, they're like, oh, you did this thing because I, that's how infrequently <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, but but it's, but it's really, but it's really more about just, you know, it's okay to be selective. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I think that, I think that's something that's kind of lost on people. It is okay to just, you know, everybody doesn't need to know everything all the time. We really don't. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's overwhelming for me. Just personally, whenever I am on social, you know, I get to a point where I'm just like, oh, I feel it. I feel it physically. It could be in my overstimulating. Body. Yeah. 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 And I was like, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm good on this. Let me go in here and get this piece of cheese with some Ooh. prosciutto because I, I like to eat and that's what I want to do. <laughs> it's interesting, like the words, like, you know, like the idea of curating a life, but mm-hmm. the way that we use curation as a verb now is also Mm -hmm. different than like the traditional use, right? Like usually curation is about editing down, but now Mm -hmm. curation is about, it seems to be more about bringing a lot of these elements together. And sometimes we skip the editing part and we're just Mm -hmm. showing a lot of elements. So I'm wondering as an artist who's kind of seen this transition, Mm -hmm. um, how you feel about the way we kind of approach curation today through social media, we can use that. Yeah. I believe to your point of the way we use the word curation, I don't think we really do. Mm. I don't think we really do because truly curating something means that you are taking a a critical look Mm. at what that thing is and why it's relevant. That's what true curation is. I'm not sure if that's what we do. So the element of the critical is not as mm-hmm. embedded anymore. It's just like looking Absolutely at the thing. Not. You're just looking. It's just, <laughs> it is just looking. It is just looking at the thing. And this is a real, this is actually a real conversation in the arts community. Really? Because, yeah, because, you know, art criticism is, uh, first of all, it, it is, it, it's an art form in its own right, right? Mm-hmm. And 
art, art criticism is important because we should be talking about the, the imagery that we're seeing. And we should be thinking about, okay, well, what is this piece or what is this information saying about the world we're living in today? What is it saying about just what's on our minds as a society? That's not something that we, that in the, you know, there, there are arts publications, lots of many arts publications that have kind of gone by the wayside because nobody's really, you know, reading arts criticism. Mm. You know, reading reading a a, a write up about a gallery exhibition right. or a museum exhibition. That's that's for those people who might need to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know, criticism is not oh well, you you know because there's a lot of criticism on that. Twitter. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It's not you know it, it's different. There's an element of thoughtfulness in viewing or intaking the information that you're seeing. I think that's, that's the difference. Mm. It's one thing to, I mean, there's lots of stuff to see. And I see some beautiful things. Um, I see some beautiful things online, um, you know, but there are a lot of things I'm just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Can I pivot to, I wanna ask you a series of like a rapid fire round just to like close off. So this should be fun. So okay, like rapid fire. Because, so you lean in rapid in. fire. Okay. See let's me go. leading in. Okay, let's go. Let's okay. Go. What is your astrological big three? Sun, moon, rising, if you're into horoscopes. Oh, um, okay. So I'm a Libra. Okay. And my partner is Sagittarius. Okay. And we are delicious together. Libra and, and Sagittarius. That's, that's okay. <laughs> we'll work with that. Those are those sun signs. Um, are you an extrovert, introvert, or ambivert? Oh, ambivert. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what color have you been drawn to lately? Mm, teal and yellow. I know okay. I gave you two, but teal and that yellow. Works. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we kind of already answered this question, but I'm sure someone like you has so many things to choose from. What do mm -hmm. you do for fun? <laughs> yes, karaoke for one. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. Gosh, there's, there are a lot of things I do for fun. Um, I'm very much an outside and outdoorsy kind of person. Mm -hmm. I have fallen back in love with swimming. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Love that. Yeah. We do and swim camping. for anyone else. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do black folks swim. We swim yes. and we camp. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and I like camping. I do. I do. Are you a I, tent I, girl or a cabin girl? How are we camping? It depends on the tent situation. Okay. You know, uh, like I'm, I got woods out here in my backyard. I'm mm. not camping out there because okay. I hear, I hear things at night. I'm not doing that. Got you. But maybe a campground at a state park. Mm. I'm good with that. Cabins are cool too. Mm. What do you collect? Mm. Wow. What do I collect? I collect, you know what? I collect artifacts or not artifacts, but I collect things that help me make art. Okay. Like and that, that's, it's random, gotcha. random, random things. I have four bags of leather scraps in my studio. Wow. Okay. I see what you mean. Waiting, waiting for me to do something with. You just don't know yet, but you're like, this could I be just useful don't know. one day. This could, this is going to come in handy. This is, yeah. So, mm. um, Mm -hmm. That's my collection practice. What are you reading? 
I am reading um, The Sum of Us by mm. Heather McGee. I just got started. What are you watching? Mm. <laughs> what am I watching? Snowfall. What are you listening to? Everything. Mm. Like literally everything. I was just playing some Cuban music by uh, Kachao mm. before this call. I know we were talking about social media a little bit earlier, so it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be quite social mm -hmm. media, but mm -hmm. what are your favorite apps? Huh. You can even cop out and use an appetizer. <laughs> no one's done that yet, but I like appetizers too. I like food. <laughs> no, what are my favorite apps? Um, probably the ones I just find I use in my, oh, my favorite app is Duolingo because oh. I am teaching myself Spanish and I am yeah. on a 169 day streak. Congratulations. Yes. Yo he aprendido español. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you have like a reminder for that to remind you to do it each day or you nope, just naturally I just do, do it. it. I just yeah. do it. I just do it. And it's, it's so, it is big because I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I just, started one day. I just started one day and I kept at it and I love it. And I'm going to Mexico in two weeks for work. For a project. Oh, that'd be great. You can practice. Yeah, so I can practice. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what it was. Maybe the universe was getting me prepared. Alignment. What's your favorite website? Ooh. Mm. <laughs> okay, this is going to be so nerd central. Love it. But the Library of Congress. Okay, that makes sense for you though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You'd be surprised. Mm. You can find all kinds of good things there. So yeah, that's my favorite website. <laughs> uh, last formal question for you is... Okay. Who is someone that more people should be following? I can't just name one person. Okay, um, you should follow me. Okay. <laughs> um, and what's your handles? You got to let the people oh, know. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So you can follow me. I'll just give you one because I actually have four. Okay. Um, you can follow me at Studio Bins. Mm. That's S-T-U-D-I-O underscore. B-I-N-N-S. I'm on Instagram. And you can also follow me at Binsky on Instagram. B-I-N-N-S-K-I. So mm -hmm. I gave you two. Um, you should also follow uh, my very dear friend, Tracy Morell, who's your artist. Um, How do you spell her Mon name? Oh, uh, Tracy. Uh, she's, it's T-R-A-C-Y. So and her last name, uh, yeah. And her last name is M U R E L L. Okay. Um, my partner in life, in love, and all things wonderful, Fabian Williams, because he really is amazing, and he's just doing, he's doing the work. Mm. Fabian Williams, F A B I A N, Williams. Gosh, you put me on. Oh. Oh, Melissa Alexander. She's a photographer and I love her. Mm. And she's just a beautiful spirit. And her work is just, just lovely. Just lovely. She does uh, photography and she's been doing some short films. Um, Fahamu Peku. Mm. Um, let me see. Charmaine Minifield. Yes. And Charmaine's uh, daughter, um, Sienna, the color Sienna. The color Sienna, yes. The color Sienna. They go by they them pronouns, but they are doing just some beautiful work. There's so many others. I just, oh, uh, after I get off this, I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, this person, that person. 
but that's who I got right now. Wait, okay, okay, one more person, one more person. Angela Davis Johnson. I don't know what her handles are. Okay. But her work, her work. I'll is look great. everybody up. Okay. I have a notes reference page. I'll make sure okay. we include everybody. Gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Kimberly. This has been Thank fun. you. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your interest. I appreciate you just, you know, chatting, chatting me up. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with interdisciplinary artist Kimberly Benz. To me, the overarching theme of our conversation was freedom. Freedom is something that has been historically denied to Black people on an institutional level, but is also something we have found ways to create for ourselves as individuals through the ways we curate what we consume and who we commune with. Kimberly's solo exhibition titled Homefront and Other Memories was on view at the Haga Brooks Gallery in Atlanta's King Historic District earlier this year. For the exhibition, she drew from historical archives of erased Black townships in the metro Atlanta area to highlight how Black townships, post-emancipation freedmen's towns, and urban safe havens became the targets of systemic erasure through policies rooted in anti-Blackness that continue to impact Black communities today. At the top of our conversation, Kimberly talked about how gentrification has impacted Atlanta's historically Black West End neighborhood. Atlanta's West End neighborhood was named in the 1860s after London's famed theater district and is known for its proximity to the Atlanta University Center, which includes institutions such as Clark Atlanta University, Morehouse College, Morehouse School of Medicine, and Spelman College. The church that I attend, Cornerstone Church ATL, is also located in the west end of Atlanta, so it is an area that I visit often. One development in particular that residents are tracking in the west end are the proposed redevelopment plans for the mall west end. The Mall West End is a modest shopping center that is located between Oak Street and Ralph David Abernathy Boulevard. Proposals to quote unquote revitalize this community center of commerce have been on the table for years. Potential developers, including West End native and investor Don Ray Vaughn, Atlanta Beltline visionary Ryan Grable, and New York based developer Tishman Speyer have indicated interest in redeveloping the 50-year-old shopping center before ultimately pulling out of the deal for various reasons. As of September 2022, a pair of New York-based developers have pursued plans to redevelop the mall into apartments, retail, and a possible hotel. I can't help but to compare these mixed-use redevelopment plans to the revitalization efforts that were laid out in the 1995 City of Atlanta Comprehensive Development Plan, or CDP, which focused on the city's preparation for the 1996 Summer Olympic Games. Back then, private funding was brought in to revitalize the Techwood-Clark Howell neighborhood in 1995 
by transforming the neighborhood into a mixed income community that ultimately pushed out the neighbor's original residents, forcing them to either move elsewhere in Atlanta or to the suburbs. Tuckwood would serve as a model for the mixed income, mixed use communities that Atlanta would develop in the years to come. Scholars such as George Lipschitz, Brandy T. Summers, and Kianga Yamada Taylor have studied the various ways that the state has limited the mobility of Black Americans since slavery. These anti-Black practices include convict leasing, Black codes, loitering laws, redlining, restrictive covenants, racial zoning, legal and illegal redistricting, increased incarceration, and increased surveillance, among the many other practices that I could list. Ultimately, what we learn from these practices is that space plays a critical role in the exercise of power. This is referred to as the racialization of space. The racialization of space means that seemingly race-neutral sites like shopping malls can contain hidden racial assumptions and imperatives. If we, as residents of Atlanta, don't pay attention to the private-public partnerships that run the city, the revitalization of the mall West End could easily transform the neighborhood into yet another physical manifestation of the now-famous James Baldwin quip. Urban renewal means Negro removal. I am Anuli Akinabu, and you have just listened to an episode of the Black in Real Life podcast. The program today was produced, edited, and hosted by Anuli Akinabu, with additional support from Anuli Akinabu. Many thanks to Garth, whose song Wild serves as the official theme song of the Black in Real Life podcast. Season 3 matches up wild with the song If I Ruled the World, Imagine That by Nas featuring Miss Lauren Hill. For all things Black in Real Life, visit www.blkirl.com. And remember, as always, the people you follow online are also Black in real life.